For September 12th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 167, Natural Brunch Talk. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Back in my right desk, in my right mind, with my right computer, at the right microphone, I'm Matt. On the left coast. Sorry? (laughs) On the the left coast. On On the wrong coast. But, um, yes. Oh, it's so nice to have your computer back. It is amazing uh, how involved I am with this little piece of plastic. Uh, And that, like, how how much of a relief and how much I felt like I, I couldn't do my life without this uh without this object um how just everything was on hold for the the week that it was in the shop getting the fan replaced it's also amazing how much replacing the fan in a laptop increases the performance of the laptop i could not play youtube on my laptop and it is almost impossible to uh, be a writer on overthinking it if you cannot play youtube um, but now everything is working. You'll be you'll be glad to know everything's working well. It's a real stringent requirement we have. It's hey, ironic you play because YouTube videos on your computer. Yes, it's ironic. Yes. It's ironic because any other kind of writing disabling YouTube is like the best thing you could possibly do. <laughs> yeah. Not uh, not this, not this show. Uh, well, um, this is the episode for September twelfth, uh, twenty eleven. We're recording though on September. 11th, uh, 2011, and the um, we've all kind of waded through the the press coverage and kind of stuff in the culture about the 10th anniversary, about the 10th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center. Um, the uh, I guess the final terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center because there were there were other ones before. Uh, I guess. Um, so well, there might guess. be ones. Maybe you guess. <laughs> like you're just like ah, probably they were. I'm no, not. I, know, I, I mean, I know. I guess in the sense that uh, you know, I suppose that we, we shouldn't uh, neglect anything. It's so hard not to seem like you're trivializing something when you talk about this uh, this topic, and that's why we're going to stay away from it. It's kind of outside. We sort of debated it beforehand, but it's it's kind of outside our. Um, uh, what range of subjects that that we talk about but um you know we feel like the the listeners have kind of gotten to know us uh you know it over the years and you may you know i don't know be interested in in our lives or we may be your internet friends we hope uh we're your internet friends so um we'll we'll indulge briefly in the in the uh in the never forgetting and uh so <laughs> Oh. Briefly, yeah, briefly. Uh, where were you? Uh, where were you on nine eleven two thousand one? First in the alphabet, uh, because all is right in the world. It's Peter Fenzel. Hey. hey. Uh, so li- a little bit of backstory from so before we flash back. Uh, this weekend was the Boston Improv Festival, and uh, I had a great time hosting shows for visiting groups this weekend. Last night we had a big cast party, and uh, after the party, uh, I went out to well, we went to the after party. I didn't go to the hotel lobby, uh, but I did. No, I did not. I didn't go to the hotel lobby, but I did go to IHOP. I went to like the <laughs> IHOP in Brighton, and I got home at like seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning, and then proceeded to sleep until six o'clock at night. 
uh, and <laughs> which was kind of ridiculous. Um, and so this is fitting because if you flash back 10 years, where was I when the World Trade Center uh, collapsed? I was asleep. Um, I was sleeping in, and uh, it was really strange to sort of wake up and to have everybody already talking about it and taking a little bit of time uh, to get acclimated because I remember um, watching on TV uh, the Pentagon stuff. I was like, oh, this is crazy because people outside my window were talking about it. Like I had a girl lived above me, a girl lived below me, and they're like, oh, someone's sending an email out. Oh, my goodness, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, just shut up. It's it's Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock. Why are you talking? Um but yeah, and I remember seeing it in split screen. But the other thing about where I was that I spent a lot of that day on AIM, uh, believe it or not. I was a, I was a sophomore in college. Um, I spent a lot of it on AOL Instant Messenger. So I guess some things 9-11 changed forever because I don't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> wow. I don't think to joke about it, but it's really the only way to keep the conversation going without getting too deep. There are definitely people I know who are lost that day. It's very sad. But uh, I was asleep. Uh, I went to class. We learned about the amygdala in cognitive science class, which was really interesting context to learn about it. Uh, and then I went home and I went to Instant Messenger. And then a bunch of stuff happened that was a bit too personal for me to talk about on the podcast. They so did, there you uh, go. They, they held class? My, my class was canceled that morning. Oh, yeah. Well, this was in the afternoon. It ah. was about 2.30. And it was a brief class. It was a cognitive science class. And it was really interesting what the professor chose to do. We all came in and the professor showed a big image of an airliner on the big projection screen. And everybody was like, because oh! it feels like even by that point in the day, people had really gotten, you know, they'd absorbed a ton of information about what had happened, right? And everyone was like shocked when she showed the picture of the airplane. And she explained how, um, you know, that picture of the airplane was totally harmless yesterday. Nobody would have reacted to it in like a shocked manner. But how, you know, your amygdala in your brain uh, computes you know, and, and processes memory and emotional states con- uh, connected with one another, such that uh, when something you see something resonant or you hear something resonant, it can bring up the emotional frame of reference that you had when you saw it or remembered it. And, and memory is really heavily tied to emotional states. And so uh, by seeing the airplane, we couldn't help but immediately recall the feelings that we had that were associated with it, which is a really important concept in cognitive science. And it turns out also in all sorts of fields like marketing and politics and, and any sort of fiction writing or anything like that, just the relationship between remembering things and, uh, and feeling them and getting to make an impact on people and provoking their strong emotions. So. That's that's amazing. That's that's like the best kind of teaching, isn't it? That like mm-hmm. it's sort of engaged. It's sort of engaged with the world, but in a way that is not trendy. You know, you know what I mean. Like sometimes I don't know. Sometimes there's sort of political teaching or teaching that's engaged in the world in a way that's glib or kind of cynical. But uh, uh, what a thing! That's a that's a neat story. Yeah, it was. It was. I felt lucky for that. For even the, you know, for that small part of that crazy, crazy, terrible day. Cool, Mark Lee. <laughs> All right, like Pete, I was also in college. Like Pete, I also slept through the major events of the day and woke <laughs> up to you know discover that they all transpired. But I have a couple of distinct memories I want to share from that uh, terrible day. <clears throat> the first was learning about everything that had happened through a chain of emails. Um, we were all on a uh, discuss discussion forum sort of type of email for the extracurricular activity that we're all involved in. And the chain started with, I woke up and it was about, you know, 1030 or so. I had class at 1130, which I would not, I didn't wind up not going to. Like at about 10.30, seeing emails started coming in from 8 a.m. being like, oh, that's crazy. A plane crashed in the World Trade Center. And then the threat just kept going and going 
and like this, the the events of the of the morning played out, and it came from like that's weird, and uh, the plane crashed into the World Trade Center. To oh my god, we're under attack! Uh, what the hell is going on? That was surreal. Uh, that was uh, you know that sort of a, I guess a 21st century way of learning about uh, a, a major important events through an email chain. Um, but that was one thing. The other thing that I remember about that day. And I wanted to share this with you guys and, and get your reaction to it was that, uh, you know, like everyone else, I didn't know what to do. Right. And you all may remember the onions uh, take on this, which is, you know, a American, you know, a local housewife not knowing what else to do bakes an American flag cake. Right. Mm. And my version of that was I set my computer desktop background to an American flag. Mm. I didn't know what else to do. It felt appropriate. And that's what I did. And uh, looking back on it, and maybe it feels a little bit silly, knee-jerk, or an empty gesture. Um, in fact, like, uh, one of my roommates at the time, Jessup, was like, you know, like, you put an American flag on your desktop? What, what the hell? Kind of thing. And it's like, I don't know what else to do. I think that might have been my actual response. Um, or more like, why not? Um, so I remember that very distinctly. And, uh, you know, like today... 10 years later, like, doesn't occur to me at all to, like, you know, put an American flag on my desktop background of, uh, you know, some nice pictures that I took on vacation that are on my desktop background right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, 10 years later. Mm. I, I, hey. 10 years ago, my desktop background was, uh, was an American flag, and I thought nothing of it. Well, not th- I thought nothing strange of it. That was a totally appropriate thing to do because I didn't know what else to do. Yeah. So, Mark, let me ask you this, because I knew you in, in college, and we all knew each other in college. Um, was 9-11 for you a day where you played more than, less than, or a usual amount of Super Nintendo Mario Kart? That's a really good question. Because uh, you, were, you were very into the Mario Kart. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not just the, you know, the Mario Kart most people uh, were very into, which is the 64 version. We were very into the Super Mario Kart version of it and that was very that's that was like defined really that year of of of, well not that year of college my four years of college um (laughs) not no but not not as much for sure because that that the tv that uh, would have been playing mario kart was on the news like everything like uh most of their tvs were at the time well now we know that the series did in fact win because they prevented you from playing Mario Kart. <laughs> Sorry, I joke about things that I can't handle. <laughs> uh, Jordan Stokes, are you three for three? Were you were you asleep during the defining <laughs> event of our life? Um, of our adult not, political landscape. I wasn't actually asleep during that, but I... Uh, I, I too kind of like missed the boat on it. So I had a, a class that morning um, and I woke up kind of running late. Um, and I like, you, you know, I went to, uh, to the shower and like got my stuff together. And then I sat down to check my email before leaving, uh, leaving the room as I would often do. And there was an email, probably the same one that, uh, that someone was just talking about that said, holy crap, a plane just crashed into the side of the, the World Trade Center. And my mind interpreted this as like a little prop plane or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like, something like that had happened um, a, a year or two earlier where like a, a little like uh, sightseeing plane had crashed into a skyscraper and the people in the plane had died. And I assumed that that was what was going on. At this point, I realized that I was going to be late for class, but I didn't get out the door. And I went to class and uh, my teacher, I, I forget what the class was, but they didn't do anything special with it, which I think is also a valuable thing. You know, like sure. the, the, I remember the classroom was very empty, but the teacher 
showed up because that's their job. And the people who had showed up, they were like, you know, these people, for whatever reason, want to hear me lecture on this topic, so I'm going to just do my thing. And I think it was like a little bit short. And I then went to uh, the library and like worked on a paper that I had overdue or something like that. And around two o'clock in the afternoon, uh, when I was done working, came back and, you know, all of the sort of, all of the, the things had kind of played out by that point. And then I, uh, you know, read CNN.com for about five hours. Um, and yeah, called my parents. I remember, wow. Yeah. That, yeah that, like, I've heard a lot of people's stories about 9-11. That day. I think that's the, the most lag time for anybody who was, you know, not uh, like, you know, in the woods. Basically. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <So> I, <laughs> I was surrounded by, uh, by, you know, by things that used to be trees. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so that's what happened. And then I, I remember the other thing is I, I wanted to call my parents to assure them that I was all right because, you know, I was, I was in Connecticut and who knows, <laughs> it's kind of close. Uh, and it, it took me like a solid half hour of trying before I was able to get through them and leave a message because the phone circuits were, uh, even, even at that point, you know, well into the afternoon, the phone circuits were just so jammed. Right. Yeah, that was part of the personal stuff that I don't want to talk about from that day, that whole harrowing experience with that nonsense. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Uh, I'm sorry to bring it up then. Oh, no, it's fine. You, your experience with it was fine. Mine's more complicated. I don't want to get into it here. But if you email fenzelitoverthinkingit.com, you can get a special one-on-one personal recount of Pete Fenzel's 9-11 experience. <laughs> Oh uh, man! I'll be interested. It costs two ninety nine. It's, it's it's the same cost as my Ghostbusters two overview, so you can make your choice one or the other. <laughs> like make the choice after you email me, <laughs> just so you have time to think about it. I've been I've been uh, monitoring you- the Twitters while we're we're recording, and and Rob Cordry uh, tweets. Uh, all in all, this was a pretty solid nine eleven. Weren't weren't. So mine, uh, I was not asleep. So I, I'm breaking the, uh, I'm breaking, I guess, the streak. Well, Jordan broke the streak already. I, I was up before 7 o'clock because I had to move my car. I, uh, I just uh, had brought my car to Yale, and, and you could park in the lot behind Hendry Hall, and uh, provided you were out by 7 in the morning. Um, so while I was there... Uh, well, uh, while I was driving my car back to the garage, the sort of distant garage where it was parked, I, um, I got a call on my uh, candy bar Nokia cell phone, and it was, which I answered in the car because you could do that then. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, 9-11 changed many things. Uh, so um, it was my mother. And she wanted to know if I was all right. And I was like, yeah, mom, I'm fine. Why? why?" And she said, well, you know, we're, we're, we're under attack. And I said, sure, mom, sure. We're under attack. Uh, you know, in, in that sort of, in that, I guess, sort of jerky way that, that kids can have with, with their parents, or maybe it's just me where it's just like, there you go. (laughs) There you go. Over dramatizing things. Uh, over dramatizing <laughs> things again. Anyway, so uh, so I parked and I, I went to class. I had an early class, and I remember what it was. It was the uh, the history of electronic music, and we were going to listen to some music concrete. We were going to listen to like Varez and tape loops or something. Um, <laughs> and we uh, uh, and I, we came in, and class was canceled. And then the um, 
the big screen was uh, was lowered and the projection TV was turned on to the news. So I was sitting in LC 101, a big lecture hall at school, uh, watching the news on a you know on an enormous pro- projection screen, and that's where I saw the the. Uh, Oh, now the chronology is a little is a little screwy for me. But I saw, I think the second uh, the second plane hit the the second tower and and the first tower go down, um, and then I I uh, Javier actually showed up in LC one hundred one and for some reason and he and I sat together and and uh, and watched the thing. But that was my uh, my my first response was denial. Uh, sure, mom, sure we're sure we're under attack. Um, because uh you know i don't know um because that's the kind of jerk i am i suppose uh <laughs> but uh but then i you know i remember i spent the evening in the uh uh in the company of of friends and um uh and yeah well I, do we do we take anything away from that exercise from that uh kind of sort of recital of uh of fact one thing that i think is interesting is that those of us who were unaware um are all kind of apologetic for being unaware and i'm not sure that that's really a rational response you know like terrible things happen in the world every day um and although you know you have a you have a duty to keep yourself informed and check your email and get up on time for class so that you can do these things in detail um for most of human history, like bigger tragedies than that took longer to trickle down to people who are as kind of relatively distant from us as most of us seem to be, um, you know, distant from like the, the actual events of question. Um, and I think it's just sort of interesting that like we, we live in a, an era where cataloging First of all, being aware of like of a tragedy as it goes down, and then kind of cataloging your response to that tragedy is the sort of accepted way of dealing with it. Like we're here sitting here doing like where were you on that day? And I don't know about I wasn't one who suggested that, so I can't really say for sure. But when that came up as a thing to talk about, I sort of went back to thinking about my sort of parents' generation going through the litany of where they were when Kennedy was shot. Sure. Um, and like a generation earlier going through the litany of where they were uh, on when Pearl Harbor was attacked and so on and so forth. Um, so maybe it is an older thing, actually. Uh, but it used to be that you'd have to kind of like actually figure that out. Where were you when, when Kennedy was shot? Well, like, you know, they were, they were in school and uh, eventually news got to the school and they called everyone into an, an assembly and so on. Um, we did that for the OJ verdict at my school. <laughs> Whereas with us, well, you're like, Los Angeles, the, yeah. the expected answer, the answer that you're supposed to say is like you found out about it and then you were glued to the TV watching it transpire in real time. You know, um, if someone had been like, oh, I was on a fishing trip. I found out a week later. People would be like, you know, what kind of ass are you? <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. It's like because there's this idea that it has to have a poetical context because it's an important event. Right. There has to be like an appropriate response to it. But of course, we see there the disjuncture between the narrativized human experience and what our actual everyday lives are really like. Um, yes. It would be interesting. That. 
like a good question to ask, although I don't know if it would be necessarily that interesting for, for any of us, is not what were you doing when you found out, but when was the point in your life that it mattered most? Because that's not necessarily the point when you find out. It might like it might be something that happens months later when suddenly you realize like, oh hey, this is nine eleven, like coming home to roost for me. Right, right, right. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to see if there would be some sort of historical uh, context or, or insight from looking at like the top pop culture from the week, but it turns out to be like a ton of really unremarkable stuff. Um, so that so it's one of the things I was thinking of is was sort of like what would you have been doing on nine eleven if nine eleven had not happened? Like, what would your day have been like? And like, are there other days from that time period that you can say that about with the same kind of certainty? That which sort of gives you a sort of momentary insight into what your life is like and the choices that you make. Like, would you have gone to see American Pie two, right? In the theater, which was still in the theaters at the time. Like, would you be listening to the number one pop single of the day, which was "I'm Real" by Jennifer Lopez featuring Ja Rule, which I think we all remember as being a pretty terrible song. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm Alabama. Alabama. Well, that's not that one, but Ja Rule I've never been a huge fan of. Although, where the party at with Jagged Edge, which is one of my favorites songs was the number six song on the charts at the time so that's kind of cool there's a couple of good songs on there like uh let me blow your mind by gwen stefani or hit him up style by blue cantrell so that's a great song <laughs> yeah <laughs> good stuff good stuff but yeah and the other movies are like jay and silent bob strike back oh which is a remarkable movie about high school basketball othello um <laughs> but yeah but <laughs> I don't know. There's just like it's it's like it, it really is a mark of how how fictionalized. I think that's where a lot of the kind of sarcasm and humor comes from is is how in our efforts to find the appropriate way to continue to understand and re-understand this one day, we just fictionalize and re-fictionalize what happened then and it just eventually becomes this really bad like Star Trek fan fiction. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add to that as well. I'll say <laughs> there's a big there's a big distinction between the four of us who were uh basically outside of new york city proper on that day and then the folks who were there well yeah and really experienced it firsthand like you know saw the, the 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 smoke cloud like you know didn't have subways to ride and you know more directly probably you know perhaps lost you know someone close to them on that day right you know for us like it is that it, it is possible for us to fictionalize it for other people like a former coworker of mine who was working at battery park city at the time, you know, this is a very it was a it was a, so much more of a real thing for him. Like he was actually, you know, involved in uh, in, in some of the cleanup uh, surrounding that event. You know, like to him to have this sort of conversation uh, about it, like it would be unthinkable, right? And it's not to say that it's not appropriate or correct for us to have this conversation about it. It just uh, it was just you know the the, the circumstances. Uh, around our lives, right? Which, you know, uh, what, the 3 million people in the United States, you know, minus the 8 million that live in New York City for the other, you know, 292 million people in uh, in the United States, that's kind of how we we we, we are reacting to it now, or right. we are able to, at least. Right. Yeah, and we're also breaking our promise to our listeners by doing the thing that we said that we wouldn't do, <laughs> which is going off the rails on this sort of right, thing. Right, right, right. And, and it's, <laughs> you know, like, it, it's, it's on my mind. It's, I'm sure it's on the minds of other listeners as well. Because yeah, like God knows we treat the, the listeners with such respect. When we well, promise we love our listeners. <laughs> our word is bond. Look, <laughs> we listeners, never, 
especially on the podcast. We never jerk them around. It's, it's not you guys. It's me. I'm doing my best. I just wait, have wait, problems wait, sometimes wait. staying on topic. What is this weird? What is this weird hostility from you? We we really do love. Well, our no, I'm not. Actually. I'm, I'm not saying that we don't like the listeners. I'm just saying that we routinely like lie to them, especially on the front of like, are we going to talk about this topic on the podcast or not? You know? well, okay, okay, fine. Okay. We're going to get to your listener feedback next week, guys. Yeah. <laughs> We're it's all caught up on listener feedback. feedback, feedback. Yeah, a, it's yeah. just because we get sidetracked. <laughs> well, we, I, at the time we make those statements, we have every intention of making them true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like wedding vows. Jordan, yeah. like, come on. <laughs> you know? Well, I was going to say that if married life has taught me anything, it's that, like, that doesn't stop it from being a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever do it, I'm a baby. I'm going to do Whatever. that. I swear I'm going to make that risotto, baby. I'm going to make that risotto later. Yeah. I'll make it next week. I'll make that risotto next week. Oh, man. Uh, so wait, what's, uh, that just makes me think <laughs> well, of like that, yeah. of like metaphors that you use for like like important personal things in relationships. It just it just I just had a flash to like watching the wedding singer and it has that that scene when they're in the wedding in the wedding singer when they're flying and um, and Drew Barrymore is explaining her relationship with douchebag or whatever his name is by saying that like she wants to sit by the window but he won't let her and she's never gotten to see the bright lights of Vegas as they've flown into it because he always sits by the window which is this like really transparent and like kind of gross sexual metaphor at least the way that i see it but i'm sure that there are people who are like no what are you talking about like it's just he's just talking about airplanes like it's yeah. just you know it's not and, like and uh, the drink cart always smashes into her elbow oh yes. yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's a, it's really evocative definitely it's like, ow you're out you're you could stop now okay oh man and it was also makes me think about uh so I was in an improv workshop a couple of weeks ago where we were talking about things that are difficult to portray honestly on stage. Uh, and one of the things that it's difficult to do on stage, I find, as an improviser, is to get into scenes. It's, it's more difficult to love someone than to hate them on stage. And one of the reasons it's hard to love somebody is that if you, if you try to encourage that, oftentimes the person will just start humping you, and then the scene doesn't go anywhere. Right? Like, <laughs> so like, they'll be like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, no, we can heighten this in other ways. Like, we don't have to go right here. You buy me dinner first but no and uh but what what the instructor said and the instructor was the very very funny uh jill bernard based out of the huge theater in minneapolis and is a wonderful wonderful improviser and she was saying well you can always do the stuff they do in the movies like pan to the ocean right or like you know like pan to the fireplace uh like you could do that in improv as well or you can uh, you can speak of it metaphorically although her suggestion i really liked was like use finger puppets like put your hands out and just enact what's happening um <laughs> One of my I've best memories never, of September 11th is that was back when Jordan had a wonderful gesture for sexual congress that he would right. use quite regularly. But uh, if I, you want to know what that hand gesture out, looks actually. like, you can email me. What? I, I trotted that back out uh, within the month. I was, I was kind of surprised to see it myself. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm, I just want to say I'm kind of a connoisseur of ways to like absolutely ruin improv performances. I'm not an improviser, <laughs> but I, I kind of like to think about the, the theory behind it. And then like Pete knows this. I've, I've said it to him. I don't think that's, he finds that's it. That's not a birthday present. That's a submachine gun. 
<laughs> well, yeah, like, uh, and specifically, rather than saying yes and, like, bringing everything back to spearfishing, mm-hmm. like, that you have a character who's a spearfisher that shows up in every bit. But I think that, um, like, I have a new one, which is great, uh, which is that whenever the improv comedians ask for any kind of suggestion from the audience, it doesn't matter if this falls into the category or not. Uh, so they say, like, I need, I need a place of business. And you shout out, tell me where you were when you found out about the September 11th attacks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's pretty much a, that's a, that, that, the terrorists will win if you do yeah, that. That's, that's, what we, that's, what we, that's what we in the business call a block. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. So, okay, guys. So, all right. So, I tried to do a segue why, before. Why isn't that, like, Pete, why is that hard? Like, smooching ladies is half the reason I'm in a, I'm a, you know, theater actor. Like, because that's something, <laughs> that's something you're called on to do, you know, uh, not infrequently. and mm-hmm. Because, because, you know, drama tends to be about... Um, heightened situations and uh and that's certainly a heightened situation and like so why why is it not why is it not awesome to go to go uh to get your to get your smooch on in uh an improv um (laughs) in the improv uh uh world well i mean i wasn't really speaking metaphorically when i said that it will lead to humping very quickly like that wasn't really a metonymy like (laughs) (laughs) Like this happened in the show that I did in New York City a couple like back in mid-August at the Del Close Marathon where it was like two men in a boat. Right. And we were just sort of like talking about all the different ways in which we were like stuck. Sure, This isn't a metonymy. What? You're sure there's nothing metaphorical. Was there there a little man standing at the head of the boat? Well, no, the, the, the show, the scene was supposed to be about metonymy, but it turned out to just become a humping scene where I'm like standing there by the railing of the boat and my, my scene partner is just humping me. And I'm like, there's nothing that's going to happen in this scene anymore and nobody is editing it. And it's just sitting here and it's not comfortable for me. Uh, I mean, I guess I could have just gotten into it and been like, yeah, uh, but like how long can you do that on stage? I mean, I guess if no, you did no, it for no, a No, 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 you start crying like you're traumatized. <laughs> You know, you, know what I, you know what I mean? Uh, and you start, like, you get really uncomfortable. Like, no, please stop. Please stop. This is not <laughs> Why are none of you doing anything? You break the fourth wall. You look out at the audience. and you. you know, <laughs> why, why are none, none of you putting a stop to this? Um, <laughs> you know, that's funny. <laughs> that's yeah, well, comedy. But we all do nothing. It really, you know, the world really calls upon all of us to do our best. And when times are tough and we're asked to rise to the occasion, uh, we really need to show our true character and do what needs to be done in the world, uh, which is why you should stop people from humping each other in improv <laughs> That's really the lesson of the week. Um, and if you don't ever watch improv, I suggest going to see it. And, um, and when people start humping each other on stage, being like, you monster! <laughs> you monster! <laughs> Where were you on September 11th, Zags? How dare you, sir? How dare you? How dare dare you? Uh, uh, Humping an improv is basically when you've run out of actual jokes, right? Yes, but this was like 45 seconds into the show. (laughs) (laughs) And also mime machine gunning, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just like yeah, rat, 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 that's. Rat, the, I mean, that, yeah, that's the worst. That's the worst thing, right? Like my my uh, my firearms. I think mm-hmm. is like the. That's maybe the worst thing on uh, in improv, right? So the, the 
the absolute worst improv would be that scene from uh oh, what's the movie where it's just a, a giant fight scene all the all the way through with Paul Giamatti in it. Oh, um, shoot him up. Yeah, shoot him up. So the scene where like they're having sex as they shoot a whole bunch of people mimed by improv comedians would would be probably be about the least successful uh, gag that you could well, do. That, that combines humping and weapons. Yes, which I'm assuming that this is bad, but maybe they're like negative numbers and you multiply them together. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. I think the worst thing you can do is just to be like, I'm not going to participate in this and just walk off stage. <laughs> That's really by far the worst thing that you can do. And I've Pete, seen Pete, something tells me you're not presenting it hypothetically, that that perhaps is actually I, happening. You know, you, you, we have a good friend, John, and, uh, and John always used to ask me, Hey, Pete, have you ever thought of X when we used to live together? And I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before, like years ago. It's like, hey, Pete, do you ever think of X? Usually being like, hey, Pete, do you ever think of what it would be like to be sexually assaulted in prison? Right. <laughs> and I'd be like, we're, we're, know, not talking um, about, we're not talking about John Parrish, by the way. No, 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 no. We're talking about John Levin, who uh, asked to be shouted out on the podcast uh, last week, which is why I'm shouting him out on the podcast. Uh, and he's awesome, and he's a good guy. And uh, in another world where he's slightly less busy with his job, perhaps he would participate in this, in this endeavor with us. But um, I'd always say, like, well, John, I've been alive for a long time, and I've spent most of that time thinking. I've thought of most things. Uh, and like, I don't mean, like, in the sense I've come up with most good ideas. I mean, like, I've reviewed most hypothetical situations, like, at least once. And been like, okay, that would say <laughs> That's an awfully, that's an awfully, yeah, it's an awfully bold statement. Well, I, I mean, it isn't true. I mean, because every once in a while something does come up, and I'm like, wow, I never thought of that, and I'm really amazed. But for the stuff that you're likely to actually talk about, like, on a Sunday afternoon, like being sexually assaulted in prison, um, which is just, like, natural brunch talk. Um, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Of course, I was like watching Oz because John had Oz on all the time. And of course, I was like watching Oz. And at some point or another, I was like, wow, that would be horrible if it were me. You know, like uh, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, I don't know. Um, do you guys feel like you have like a life of the mind that's been through a lot of stuff, like that has hypothetically experienced like a great many things? I mean, I think as a person who's a mass consumer of like a great deal of fictional information um, and, 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 correspondent information, if not true information, like information that is meant to correspond with something that is interpreted by someone as reality, right? Like, aka the news. Um, having experienced all that stuff, that one might, that might prompt you to think more about what might happen or what you might live through. Um, well, let, let, me, let me put this question out there. Prior to hearing about the premise behind the human centipede, how many yes. of you had, you know, hypothetically thought about, oh, what if we, you know, put arranged people as a human centipede? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> that is something I had not considered. There you go. It's yeah. true. It's true. Uh, so, like, you know, yeah, there are there are more horrible things that can be done to your anus ratio than are dreamt of in your philosophy. <laughs> oh, that that version of what is that called? Ramlet? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> um, the first, uh, yeah, that's the first folio. Oh, uh, uh. there's just no blur in the mind to suffer. I'm not going to say that they're suffering because it's a family show, but it's various penetrating objects. Um, yeah, uh, you know, where, um, you know, what, 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 what? you know, what, uh, you know, TV show often featured Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm making this up because I killed Pete Segway into the other thing we was talking about, but by talking about 9/11 some more. So I'm going to try it again here. You know what show that it you know did some Shakespeare dramatizations on? 
I guess the uh, Oz, uh, Oz, but also, uh, you know, yeah. Star Trek, the next generation. Yeah. I think Star- we want to talk about Star Trek, apropos of uh, well, the next generation uh, being released on Netflix streaming. Right? Yes, yeah, Matt, Matt's been viewing it from the beginning onward. I have been viewing it from the beginning onward. And, I, I, you know, I've been, thinking about, I've been thinking about what I could do on overthinking it, maybe doing a uh, sort of a lost style um, uh, uh, thing like uh, what Shana did with Lost. Uh, Shana on overthinking it. Spencil (laughs) and Rather on the podcast. Stokes with the Cowboy Bebop. (laughs) Stokes with the risotto. Nice. Lee, his arms open. (laughs) A lot of people are very confused by this. All right, anyway, continue, Matt. Continue. Um,. We do want to get back to Darmok and Jalad. There are four people on this podcast. <laughs> do you know, sometimes I thought John Parrish was actually on the podcast that week. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, wow. Uh, anti-time data. <laughs> Wait, have I, I've told you guys about my old senile Peter Fenzel email account, right? No. I, no. I trot him out every once in a while. Like he's mostly for listservs, like where I have large listserv conversations. But every once in a while if the conversation gets like way too off base. And it's sad now because Google Groups used to let me do this and I'm not allowed to do it anymore because now like the Google Groups that I'm on, you have to be a member of the group to post to them. So where, whereas I used to be on listservs where less like a random person could email it. But like I have an email account that's literally like named old senile Peter Fenzel, which is like old senile Peter Fenzel at gmail.com. Uh and feel free to email him um, <laughs> who will like come into conversation and be like everyone everyone listen we need to go to the korean demilitarized zone and we need to bring 10 car batteries and we need to connect them no listen it's an anomaly we have to get to the anomaly <laughs> right and it's just and it's uh what date is it, it what date is it what day is it today? And then, <laughs> and then I'll come back and I'll be like, guys, guys, we need to go to the Korean militarized zone. <laughs> and this is, of course, all in reference to All Good Things, the final episode oh. of Star Trek The Next Generation, where like old crazy senile Patrick Stewart is like going up to people being like, we all need to do this absurd thing. I, Please listen to me. I know I'm, I, you think I'm crazy, but I'm not. Um, and it always really ends hard. with it's anti-time really hard. data. Yeah. Anti-time. I want to see him say that. I, it's been really hard not to judge jump around uh, and do my favorites, you know, jump to, I don't know, yesterday's Enterprise or Best of Both Worlds or, you know, um, some of the Klingon ones that are pretty good or, uh, or <laughs> you know, all good things. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I, but I've been good. I've been disciplining myself just to go straight through even – and, you know, there's sometimes when, when – um, there's some of them, especially in the first season where it's like, okay – well, we're we're I guess we're gonna gonna suffer through this one. Um, like, uh, well, for example, and it's the Star Trek solution, right? Is it, you is really in full force in the first season of of right. Star Trek, I th- uh, the Next Generation. I think I think the show got a little more nuanced um, in the acting. I mean, the style of performance is so. Uh, it's so presentational, it's so kind of artificial and wooden, and they're they're at pains to make everyone so effing courteous all the time, like, mm-hmm. good morning, Commander Riker, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, I, you know, I'm dashing, look at this dimple on my chin, you could cut glass on this thing. And the, uh, <laughs> you know, um, the, the pre-bearded Riker. And it, it um, 
But uh, like, uh, oh, the Ito, you know, the Ito and their laws, you know, Wesley's going to be executed because he he broke the glass because he tripped over the fence that said, don't trip over this fence. Um, uh, right. And then the, you know, the issue is, can they, can they beam them out? You know what I mean? Like the issue is yeah. like the, the, the other spaceship is, is pre- preventing them from, uh, uh, from beaming them from beaming them out, and it 's not a question it 's not a, a debate over you know interfering in another culture or whose system of morality is right or whose system of morality you should be subject to when you 're traveling and when you 're kind of under another person 's roof or under another person 's atmosphere as it were um, the uh, The issue is like we 've got to get the transporter working, but that glowy spaceship over there won 't let us and this is the um, you know uh, this is uh, uh, this is the this is the problem with it, and, and and the solution is to like have Jordy or Data do science at it for a while, and then it, it all gets better, right? Yeah. Well, in this in this way in this one, at least it's a speech that does it. At least Picard says there can be no justice as long as laws are absolute. Life itself <laughs> is an exercise in exceptions. And like it's, you know, this that's is very that's Kirk of Picard, is it not? Yeah. Right? Knowing when to break the rules. Well, yeah. orating about it in that manner is very Picard. Because, uh, yeah, remember, like Picard will do it without making any sort of grammatical errors while saying it. And will like, yeah. say everything very precisely. <laughs> it does. He is like, he is clearly the best actor on the show in, in the first. Um, uh, well, except for Gates McFadden, right? Like it's uh, he's clearly the the uh, and Gates McFadden is is Beverly Crusher. Yeah, is and she yeah. was another one who had who had a ton of theater experience. Um, she trained in in uh, in France with uh, Jacques Lecoq, who is a uh, who does like <laughs> <laughs> seriously, seriously. She trained with Jacques Lecoq. <laughs> oh my god. That, that was actually the point of the whole Star Trek part of the podcast. So. <laughs> Beat me off of this podcast. Killed it. Energize. <laughs> so we. Um... Well, it is always fun when someone is very obviously the best actor in a show. And uh, like, because it's like their characters exist in a very different sort of relationship with the audience than the ones that people are just going through the motions on. Right. Hmm. Um, well, this is. Like, I don't know. There's sort of a dirty secret about uh, about acting, right? Like, which is that um, it's hard. <laughs> which is that it's actually difficult. Like, if if we put you in a room with you know a dozen strangers and you all had to kind of act as if you were you knew each other or you you know you worked with each other every day or you knew each other a lot better than than you do. This actually we're kind of bringing it full circle. We're circling back to the stuff about why why like smooching is hard in improv uh, because uh, without humping, right? How is it, right. why non-hump smooching is uh, you know is a, a difficult uh, level of acting to attain. Um, uh, because uh, you know that that stuff that kind of chemistry that sort of that set of in jokes uh that set of of expected interactions um patterns that people fall into that that happens in a group of people is is almost impossible to fake you know and it's actually like the the show as it gets better um uh, as it gets, as it goes on it gets better because the actors get to know each other better right and that like uh it's not there, there is kind of a there is kind of a magic that develops over time um 
that you know that that may or may not be beard related that uh, uh, that just you know it needs time in the oven sometimes Mm-mm-mm. interesting and you think and they get there they get there later on in the show anti time data <laughs> <laughs> but it is yeah, funny um, oh go ahead I, I wanted to to discuss for a little bit. Um, what we think the fundamental difference is between uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek The Original Series. Because I don't think anyone's talked about that on the internet yet. <laughs> <laughs> nice. The absence of drop kicking for the, by the captain. <laughs> I mean... The this, Picard the, was, like, was willing to you know, get in there and, and rough it up a little bit you know, with the phaser or with the, uh, with the fists as well. But never a drop kick. Yeah. Right? Those they did do that, like, that loopy thing where they, like, clasp their hands together and, and like, swing it like a, uh, I don't know, like a, like a hammer with, with the bottom of both fists. That's, yeah. like, the, the one yep. star, <laughs> Starfleet official martial art, I guess. Yeah, you only see that in uh, professional wrestling, in Star Trek, and in Dragon Ball, where they do the thing. Oh. <laughs> Dragon Ball, they and, toss uh, you a mile into the air, and then they pound you down into the ground. Uh, and in Star Trek, they pound you on the back so that you collapse slightly after being hit. Um, and what's the what's the fighting game where you play the mayor of a city and like his like punk kid friend? And the mayor's name is Hagar, and he's got Final Fight. Yeah, he, yeah. he does that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome well okay so the important thing to remember so yeah so the, the important thing to remember when you're talking about the original series at least from my perspective it, and i'm sure everybody has different thoughts about this but the original series of star trek was not necessarily a very successful show right in its, um no it, in its time, it had its yeah. <laughs> what in its time well in it i mean in its time in the sense of while it was being shown on television right, right? like when people were first watching it um I think most people uh, – it's funny because a lot of shows you know, don't get the kind of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh lives that Star Trek got. But if Star Trek only got a, one life, you know, if, only had, if, if only had that one time when it was showing on TV, nobody would remember it. Um, because while it was – certainly it had an audience, it wasn't like a total bomb. It got canceled fairly quickly. They only made, what, like six, 76 episodes of it. Um, and it's also – it has a strangeness um, that the other shows don't have. Uh, because it it doesn't – I don't feel like the people who are making it feel like they are already working with something that is going to be successful, and they just have to make sure that they don't screw it up, right? Like there's a sense in the other Star Trek shows of sort of an execution, and this is and, – and I would say that like you know, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager are sort of like a macro arc, especially Deep Space Nine and like the last few seasons of TNG, Deep Space Nine and Voyager are sort of like one big show. With a lot of where a lot of the aesthetics and execution are the same, and they sort of figured out the formula that works, and then it kind of collapses when they get to Enterprise. But like the original series doesn't really feel like well, it yeah, has that they, same they, sort they of. They effed with it in Enterprise, right? Like it it was it was going so well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, they just run out of steam, and they just they they try changing it. They do this crazy theme song thing. But the thing about the original series, I think, is like one of the big differences is the scenes. Uh, the scenes that always jump out to me and this says about me, whatever you think it says, are the scenes between, like, Picard and some strange woman, right? 
like the sort of like like sexy scenes where it's like, Wait. oh, hello, how how are you? Next generation, you're talking about? Or? No, no, no. Sorry, between Kirk and Strange Woman. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sorry, in the original series, right? Because they have this messiness. Like it'll it'll be like a shot of Kirk, and then it'll be a shot of the woman like through half an inch of Vaseline over the lens of the camera. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be like, and she's like, oh, hello, and she'll be in some like '60s miniskirt that's like not being worn ironically at all right this is like being presented to the audience as like a woman an object of desire whereas in the first seasons of of the next generation they also wear the 60s miniskirt you know they have sort of they sort of retcon the idea but that the, miniskirts uh, the thing is the right. thing is dudes wear it too right like there are <laughs> there are miniskirted dudes and there's one miniskirted dude who is in the background of every scene when they cut around the ship it's like it's that dude is always walking through in his miniskirt it's like dude uh, really? put on I, some I, pants <laughs> but yeah but, like, I, but in, yeah. and that, that kind of thing can come full circle though because i remember when i was i, I watched some next generation when it was on the air and i remember thinking that the um the Deanna Troy sort of latex cat suit was was kind of awesome and, and hot. And when I go and look at that now, I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> what are you people thinking? Yeah, that was a character. The the costume kind of changed through the years, and like I I think got more tasteful over time. I mean, they did they did kind of correct course with her. But I saw her once at a uh, I saw her once at a uh, a Star Trek convention. Um, maybe I'm, maybe I'm tipping my hand too much by saying that when I was, um, uh, when I was 13, I went to a Star Trek convention, uh, and she, um, uh, she spoke at it and she said, uh, well, they, they said, well, why doesn't she dress like the, the rest of the cast was one of the questions that came up from the audience. And she said, well, there, there are three reasons, uh, there's the, um, <laughs> there's the official reason, there's the, the real reason, then there's my reason. My reason is... <laughs> Because she's special. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the whole nerdy crowd like started started cheering wildly. Um, the uh, the real reason was you know because at the beginning anyway she wasn't technically a, a Starfleet officer in the same way that the others were. Um, she was more there in her capacity as a medical expert, not as being part of this sort of exploring organization. Uh, uh, she got to dress differently, and the real reason, of course, was so that someone could have a plunging neckline, right? And uh, right. <laughs> you know, spandex hugging uh, curves on the um... <laughs> Marina yeah. Sirtis at the Star Trek convention. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as much as we bash it, I think it's important to remember um, that when we were younger, we felt a lot different. I mean, it's, it's sad to say it. It really is sad to say it, but I do think that when we were younger, we felt a little bit different about plunging necklines than we do now. Um, like, I don't know, either because we'd seen fewer I, of them or because our hormones were much more intense, most likely because our hormones were much more intense. Um, well, no, I, I, don't, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think that there are outfits that I see today that my reaction to them is the reaction that I had to that outfit when I was looking at it as a, as a teenager or whatever. Um, I don't think that I'm like that much more grown up. However, I do think that my sort of eye rolling disgust slash snarky laughter at the cat suit and at the 60s mini dress is the correct reaction. 
I feel like whenever like they they come out with a especially I think that science fiction is prone to this. Whenever they come out with a, a character that's like the sexy one, that's kind of a disservice to the character and to the show and even to the fans. And like I fall for it. I'll continue to fall for it. Like eighty year old Stokes is going to be looking at some like direct beam to the cortex science fiction program and being like, damn, look at that. <laughs> So but is this the point be, to talk he will about? He'll be an immature, like, idiot. He, he will be the boob in that situation. <laughs> is this a good time to talk about, was it Six of Nine in Star Trek Voyager? Did anybody of stick nine, not them? Six of Nine. That would be too much on the notes. <laughs> yeah, Six of Nine is from the porn version. <laughs> <laughs> is, so, okay. Is this a good time to talk about Seven of Nine from Star Trek? Yeah, sure. Did anybody make it that far in that series? I think I, I stuck through the first season of it and kind of got tired of the fact that uh you know they couldn't get back to earth <laughs> like I, I missed my klingons on my borg well i guess the borg came along eventually but uh, they were sexy this is this is actually a uh, this is a first i think because what you're describing there is not a star trek solution to a uh, an anything problem but a lost problem to a star trek solution oh <laughs> damn you just retconned that yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember being quite incredulous that Seven of Nine was a positive contribution to the show in like any in any particularly meaningful way. Uh, I do remember thinking that she was sort of absurdly bombastically attractive. Like it was it was sort of like hard to fathom somebody more attractive that could be on a television show so, ever. Refresh her memories. How did they justify her existence? She was a Borg, and they rescued her. They like deborged her, and she just oh. had hot underneath like the tubing in the metal plates. <laughs> Um, I don't actually remember. Like, people are going to be mad at us now because we're supposed to know this thing. <laughs> it's um, like the uh, the like the can't hardly wait plot or whatever, right? It's like, oh, don't make me take the Borg Queen to the prom. <laughs> that like she turns out to be hot all along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um. So let's see. She's represent introduced as a representative of the Borg. Oh, it's you know what it is. It's all it all has all to do with the um. So in the and I do remember this in the Voyager um, series. They ha- they deal with the Borg. Um, there's sort of like an inflation of monsters. There's like monster creep, right? Where it's like because in Star Trek: Next Generation and in, even in Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, like the Borg are this like tremendously huge threat, right? Like even the Dominion doesn't really diminish the Borg that much in the sense of it being like this big scary thing, right? Um, and whenever they make it show up sparingly, and when it shows up, like it's a big deal because the Borg are really scary. Um, but in Voyager, they kind of are running out of ideas, and and they're they're aspiring to their Star Trekness a little bit too much. They're sort of like like we have to do Star Trek related things on this show, and we're running out of Star Trek related things to do, and we don't have the freedom to expand what it is like to be Star Trek like that they had when they were first starting out. You know, in when they were in the original series, they had tons of it. Next Generation, they had a lot of it, and then in Deep Space Nine, they had less and less of it. Although DC's Nine does mess around with it in a lot of fun ways with like the sort of episodes about baseball and about like science fiction writing in the 50s. But they have the what species 8472, which is sort of like the biological – they're like the biological species that's worse than the Borg. Um, this is on Voyager now you're talking, yeah? Of Voyager, yeah. I'm sorry. I get confused. Um, no, no, so, I, mean, I, I was with you, but I just thought that we should lock it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're basically, they're basically much like how between the kind of the 90s and the 2000s and that whole era, you saw kind of a transference between super advanced science as primarily mechanical uh, and, and sort of based in information technology to like super advanced science that was based around biotech, right? And about like genetics, right? 
and, uh, and sure. sort of synthetic intelligence kind of makes the next leap. It's kind of the difference between the original, the original Terminator and Terminator and then the, the TX, which like the fact that the TX is a robot is like never even really an issue, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because it's like not exciting anymore that it's a robot. Like it has to be a sexy robot, right? Yeah. It's not good enough to just be a robot. Even between Terminator and Terminator 2, like Terminator is about technology in a big way. You know, there's like pe- people get killed by machines that aren't even Arnold Schwarzenegger in that movie. Whereas in, in Terminator 2, it's much more like, I mean, the, the fact that it's a robot rather than like the, the beast from the thing or something like that is, is not really an issue. That's true. That's very true. And the Borg are this sort of like mechanical techno monster. And species eight four seven two is like a biotechnological genetic monster. That's like uh, that's that's really they're almost they're they're almost like zerg like in certain ways, right? Like they're they're very nasty. And so the you know, Voyager and the Borg team up against them. And mm-hmm. seven of nine is like the ambassador who she like shows up and like helps them. She's like the she's like the Kennedy era advisor to the South Vietnamese who like comes to Voyager to try to like equip them and train them to fight the the. The biological monsters, um, which of course runs against a lot of what's been established about the Borg to this point, and how they deal with stuff. Although of course this, they were gradually in the process of de-establishing it, even well into the end of Star Trek: Next Generation. Yeah. And um, we, we can't we can't frown on that uh, too hard because I don't think that many people begrudge Worf, right? Whereas the Klingons in the original series were not uh, set up to allow for someone like him, right? Uh, it, it's just a question of you know the fact that this kind of thing isn't always bad doesn't mean that it wasn't bad in this case though it's true that's interesting how Worf feels very na- maybe, maybe it's because I was really young when I was introduced to Worf and but maybe it's because Worf is different enough from the Klingons from the original Star Trek that um, I accept there's something about Worf that's a lot easier to accept as a Klingon than there is about seven of nine as a Borg maybe it's that they find something in Klingonness to ascribed to Worf's character that is identifiable and interesting uh, from a, a character perspective and it has depth. Whereas like, it's very hard to really get in touch with seven of nine's Borgness, right? Um, because being Borg is like so foreign to being a human being. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and when the Borg even show like a little bit of, of emotional connection with people, it's always as this sort of like horribly traumatized, like almost childlike, you know, a, a combination of a child and somebody who's woken up from a horrible brain damaging coma, Right, like, and it's it's sort of. I always found the conversations that Seven of Nine would have about, like, you know, they try to make her data like in certain ways too. Sort of talking about the way the other half lives as being like really not. I, I wasn't jiving on them. They didn't feel intuitive and connecting to me in the same way that Bor that Worf. We can watch Worf like walk through the the pain sticks, right, or like talk to his son about Kales, and it makes sense. Um, sure, they, they yeah. find the part of it that feels like resonant for us. Um, and I guess that's one of the other – I mean, if if what we're really talking about is, like, all the different Star Trek properties as they proceed through time, like, what are some of the things that recur and when do they succeed and when do they fail? I definitely think that, like, Seven of Nine is an example of the sort of enemy becoming a friend trope mm-hmm. that is just – that doesn't really rock it for me the way that, like, Worf does. Um, and also the like, – uh, He didn't like Ensign Rowe. He didn't like uh... – <laughs> And, and Ensign Rowe was pretty stupid. I know people are going to be mad at me, but I was not a big Ensign Rowe fan. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. Um, but maybe I resented the fact that they, like, I thought they, I thought they brought her on mostly to be exotic. Like, at the time, I was like, oh, who's this chick with the, you know, this, this I don't mean to funny nose, funny nose ridge. 
Yeah, well, she was very striking. Like the, the actress who played Ensign Rowe is like a very strikingly pretty actress. And Ensign Rowe, I mean, I don't know about you guys if you guys felt the same way. In fact, I'm going to like look her up right now just so that I can see get the sense. But like she looked kind of like contemporary, like supermodelish in a lot of ways. She had that like very very severe, almost like Christy Turlington esque like cheekbones and eyes and stuff. Um, Michelle, and I remember when they brought her on for being. Yeah, her being presented as like very exotic, and she was very feisty and like and had this edge to her. And I just remember her feeling like she felt kind of out of place, and I sort of resented that as well. That introduction of that new kind of character that didn't really, to me, mm-hmm. make sense in that universe. Um, which sort of shows highest Star Trek. What she is a next generation character, right? And yes. and sort of edginess and feistiness did not really have a place on Picard's Enterprise. Right. No, I mean, that's probably like, why they introduced her. But yeah, exactly. It didn't really fit. Like, every now and then, Picard himself will get up a little Old Testament rage. But that, that has to be very carefully prepared. Like, it gets to declaim um, once per episode if it's a special episode. And everybody else needs to be professional. Um, right. She probably would have fit in a lot better on, uh, on Deep Space Nine, where I think they, they wanted to put her originally. But the, uh, she, she turned down the role. Which, like, Deep Space Nine is always kind of like, and people love it or hate it for this, it's sort of like the gritty underbelly of Star Trek. Um, and whether you're willing to accept Star Trek as having a gritty underbelly or not probably pretty much states your fondness for Deep Space Nine, right? Yeah. I mean, this, the same actress was in Battlestar Galactica as the sort of rival Battlestar captain who shows up in, like, the, was it the third or fourth season or something like that? Um, and it's sort of like, you know, very hard-nosed and, and totally does make, make sense as a sort of dark <laughs> Hard-nosed. Uh, uh, <laughs> thing. She's got a little ridge on it, a cartilagin- cartil- nah, cartilaginous ridge on it. But she's set up as this sort of contrast to Admiral Adama, as this authority figure who's not nearly as sympathetic or doesn't have that same sort of depth of wisdom, but is much more, like, sort of ruthless. Um, she doesn't stick around for very long. But, uh, but yeah, but it's like, you know, th- that is kind of the opposition that she presents, and it's not something that feels necessary on Star Trek The Next Generation. Like, they, they go to all these alien planets, they meet all these sorts of people that are unlike themselves. Like, there's really no need for one of them to be like Kit Cloud Kicker on the skateboard, on, like the uh, air skate. On, t- on Trueblood, <laughs> who is the uh, Dionysian witch who wanted to copulate with a bull? <laughs> noted. <laughs> Duly noted. Speaking, speaking of aliens who are not like each other, um, yeah. <laughs> this came up in, the, in our pre-conversation. Is one of the things we wanted to talk about vis-a-vis Star Trek The Next Generation and it being available on Netflix is that – uh, I finally caught the Darmok and Jalada Tanagra episode, which you have referenced many times on this podcast and previous episodes and also earlier in the show. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> so I wanted to take this opportunity to ask, like, what exactly is so appealing about that episode? Like, why do we get so much amusement out of it? Is it just sort of the odd turn of phrase and Picard's de- uh, Patrick, rather Patrick Stewart's delivery? Of those lines, or is there something else? Here? Mark, it's a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> so cocked, his eyes open. If you guys don't mind, I'll go first, but you guys can feel free to jump in as well. Um, one of the really appealing things about this episode. So this episode is about them meeting an alien race that only talks in in like references, basically in like pop culture references, right? It only talks in references to like its epic literature, right? So like if they if, speak if, in English, though, like. The universal yeah. translator can get that. That's the thing is that like they speak a translatable language, 
but you can only translate the words, but they really have conversations in like meta words, which are, which are like derived. So like, it would be like saying if, uh, if somebody fought a lion, it would be like Hercules and the Nemean lion. Right. And like, it's the relation, it would be, they have to reference their stories in order to reference what's going on, which is like patently absurd because where do they find the words to tell the stories in the first place if all they know are the metaphors from the stories, right? Like it, it just clearly doesn't work as a linguistic like pattern, right, as a function. It's just like it can't possibly work. But the episode holds it together on this shoestring where like they only ever really push it far enough that they can still sort of make it work, Um where like like there are moments in the show which are like very touching and nice where when they're like you know Timba his arms open like Timba at rest right and they're talking about these old stories the aliens have about friends and making friends and giving things to each other uh, and I mean the point it's making about society and about people is that are the way that we relate to each other now like derives from our ancient stories and everything that we've passed down right that like current experience and communication are not independent of historical context and, and of sort of what's passed down from generation to generation um but it's raised to this like really absurd level and the challenge is to picard to sort of be like to go through this really absurd exercise while maintaining a totally straight face and like totally buying into it and actually getting us to buy into it too and i find that really kind of contagious and really like and i'm really fond of it where it's like oh it's metaphor i see this is how it works rather than like this is the stupidest nonsense i've ever (laughs) like has anyone considered that they may just be effing with us (laughs) that's a quality that the show that the show has i mean that right that's something that's like fundamental uh fundamentally star trek right and you i've seen it a lot in the in the first season where it's the the insane commitment to uh, manifestly stupid premises are is is like is really admirable. You know what I mean? Yeah. If we could all do that, it's it's uh, uh, I don't know. It, it would be a better world. I mean, there's a lot of sci-fi shows with really stupid premises, but almost none of them really commit to them and buy into them hardcore. With, with the Star level, of, with the level of sanctimony, right? Because like, oh, yeah. what 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 sets Star Trek apart, I think, as as science fiction, is that the extremely high level of sanctimony, right? Um, <laughs> don't you think? It's I mean, I would say earnestness as well as as part of it. I don't know. Sanctimony seems really damning, and I don't want to be that potato, potato. I mean. <laughs> But yeah, well, no, really? it's, it's, very, it's, it's a very, it's almost like it treats itself like scripture. Like it really does. It's then I think that comes from the fact that it sees this franchise that it's aspiring to as almost like a holy book, right? Like this is like the new Testament of Star Trek. Well, that, I mean, um, they talk, they talked about one thing I did cheat though. I've been very good about only watching the episodes in order. I, I watched the, uh, the making of documentary, which is the last thing on the like 170 Netflix episodes. And, you know, everyone talks about, uh, at that point, Gene Roddenberry had died at the point that this making, making of, um, documentary uh, was made and they all talk about you know gene roddenberry's vision of the future gene roddenberry's vision of the future gene roddenberry's vision of the future and you know i think you kind of need you need a, a like a very strong thesis right you need a very strong kind of organizing principle um if if your show if your show is going to have that have that kind of earnestness and and one of the one of the things that star trek 
Well, maybe I'll get in trouble saying this, um, but one of the things that it, it espouses is sort of liberal ideas about the perfectibility of man, right? Like, we, we can't get better. We can't overcome greed. We can't overcome, uh, you know, uh, uh, selfishness, and we can't act in in the interests of the species, and we can't act in... Um, uh, you know, in accordance with with certain principles, and in fact, we must. You know, it's not right to violate the prime directive. Engage. There are four lights, and the um, <laughs> you know, the uh, uh, that that um, I think that requires I think that requires strong leadership. You know, strong kind of dictatorial uh, dictatorial leadership, and that. <laughs> that's hilarious so like in order to tell stories that present a liberal utopia you need a despot at yeah. the helm. <laughs> you need like a modern fascist don't you think to, like, so because <laughs> once that once that writer's room gets going on like well yeah but is everyone really nice in the star trek yeah. universe you know you need you need uh gene roddenberry or i i don't know who it would be like rick berman or someone now to like smack them down and say no no, man is perfectible. You know, the, the, <laughs> what you know about the economy does not apply here. <laughs> it's interesting. I think, though, that, that isn't, that's not something that is always true across all Star Treks because the original series, like, if you had to have, like, one, a one-sentence plot for the entire run, it's like Kirk saying, I need to save these people from their utopian society by making out with this chick and then <laughs> drunking somebody, right? And then the next generation is much more the plot that you're talking about, where they're like, if we can all just be rational and perfect about this, then everything will be rational and perfect and we don't need to worry about it. Um, And then Deep Space Nine exposes that for, like, crypto-fascism. And then Voyager (laughs) runs off the rails. (laughs) Like, that's my arc of the... But then in Voyager, they get a robot, they get a hologram doctor, and they start cruising around the universe for no reason. And, um, wait... Then it just, and then they get the pop single for Enterprise. Um, no, I see what you mean. No, there's definitely a, a bunch of big reversals and a bunch of commentaries and re-commentaries on all the stuff that happens. I think that's very insightful. Mm. Shaka, when the podcast ended. <laughs> so calm. <laughs> His eye. Are we there? Have we already taken up all that time, man? <laughs> I like I like how how the goal is to fill an hour and not to I don't like... fill an hour. I want to fill it with joy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it was a bad goal. <laughs> um, yes, uh, we have filled we have filled your hour and filled your ear with uh, with Star Trek because it's the only thing we could think to talk about that wasn't nine eleven. So, um, I, you know, I wonder what Gene Roddenberry would have, would have had to say about uh, 9-11. I'll leave you with this. Um, go, uh, Mr. Rogers released a statement after 9-11, and, and we were all feeling a little sentimental at the time, and, and maybe that's why, but it, it brought tears to my eyes when I read it. So if you want to go do something, go read uh, Mr. Rogers on 9-11. Um, and uh, uh, so if you want to join the conversation, you can call us or text us, 203-285-6401. Uh, email is podcast at overthinkingit.com. We really, really will do that listener feedback show if you, uh, if you call in. Um, until next week, I guess. 
Uh, we'll we'll be back with another podcast. We're coming up on the on the three year anniversary of the podcast. We probably should do should do um, something about that. Oh, and I meant to ask uh, if you have not, uh, do us a favor, rate us on iTunes. You can leave a comment if you want, uh, but uh, if you don't want to, if you just want to click one thing, would you go on the iTunes uh, page for this show and rate uh, the Overthinking It podcast? I, we hope you'll give it a high rating, but uh, that's one of the best things we can do to kind of surface us in, in their rankings and get more people to know uh, about the show. When a bunch of people do that and uh, a new episode comes out at the you know all within a couple of days, that's great for uh, the promotion of our, our show on iTunes, and uh, we would appreciate it if you have not done it or have not done it recently. So until next week, when we will have another short for you, you can find us on www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably probably doesn't deserve. Fence dropping off the podcast. Guys, I, I laughed so hard that I accidentally kicked my surge protector and shut off the power to my computer. So I had to restart. I got de- I have to iron out some things about my new setup here. So yeah, get the uh, get the surge protector. Well, we're done. So you know. Oh, oh, great, cool, cool, cool. And it went well. Everything. You guys did some funny stuff after the. Uh, after the credits and whatnot. This is, this is the funny stuff we're doing after yeah. the credits. Oh, really? Right, right oh, yeah. now it is happening. It's a time paradox. <laughs> Anti-time. Anti-time data. <laughs>